I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Sonali Figueres, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Hi, Bill. So great to be here. We've been talking about having this um, conversation for a while uh, on the podcast, and we never got around to it last year, but here we are. There's so much we can talk about, but let's try to keep it focused on food. We'll try. Um, I'm really interested to know more about when and how did you start to get interested in food? So if we're just talking about food without the sustainability part, I can honestly say that I'm I'm one of those people that really comes from a food world, a food background, a food family. And I always joke that I'm I'm from three very you know, influential general food cultures in the world. So I'm half Indian, which has a huge food culture, right? Um, I mean, I think we have the most vegetarian recipes in the Indian kind of um, food world in the world. And then we have, I, I, I grew up in Hong Kong and so was exposed to Cantonese food and all kinds of other Chinese regional cuisines, right? So another major country when it comes to food. And then I'm half French, and obviously France has influenced gastronomy and how we eat and, and restaurant culture and, and chef culture for, you know, many, many, for hundreds of years at this point. And so um, on top of that, I come from a long line of women who, who cook for love. Love is their, cooking is their love language. So my grandmother has a, a fairly interesting story in the sense that she was a really, really good cook. And she was also, um, unusually for her time, very, um, um, very, she took risks. And my grandfather was in the army and my grandmother lived on army bases some of her life, including in Japan. And basically she connected with, um, all, all the army wives, particularly American army wives and learned how to do American baking. And she was one of the first people in India to have uh, give classes to teach how to make brownies and cakes and American, you know, bakery items. Um, so she was quite kind of, you know, evolved for a woman in, you know, 1940s and 1950s India. Um, and her, her, her Western food and her Chinese food and her Japanese food and her Indian food was was just really well known. So I grew up going to Delhi to visit her and just always, every time I would meet someone, they'd be like, oh, Auntie Raj, she makes the best food. Can I come over? You know, and then my mom has a really funny um, story about food. So she, she really didn't cook until she was in her mid thirties and she was married to my father, a French man, French Italian, very, very, um, you know, typical French Italian, like really specific about food, knew a lot about food, taught my mom a lot about food. But what happened is she went to, um, they went to a dinner party and my father came back and was just raving about the hostess's cooking. And my mom, who at this point could not boil an egg, just thought to herself, well, I'll be, I'll be darn it if I'm going to listen to my husband talk about another woman's cooking. And so she suddenly just 
a, a switch flipped. She started learning about food she, and then she became an incredible home chef. And I grew up, by the time I came along, my mom could cook everything. And I grew up eating a very varied diet considering, you know, it was the eighties. We were in Hong Kong. You couldn't get everything. It's not like today where you literally have, you know, the whole entirety of the world's ingredients at your fingertips. No, you know, there, there, none of that was there. And, and so, so I grew up eating really good food and my mom was a big homemade typical Indian mom. Like it was like, I'll make you whatever you want to eat, including cookies, but it has to be homemade. And, you know, I was the kid that went to school with a lunchbox. Like I never, my mom never got the cafeteria lunch, which was actually a very healthy and well-balanced lunch because it was at the French school in Hong Kong and the French school lunches are really good. But my mom was, was all, nope, uh, you're getting a homemade lunch. So, and, and I have memories um, of people in my class, like fighting over my lunchbox. And they always wanted to trade because my mom made the best spaghetti bolognese and the best lasagna and best fried rice. So, so food was huge. Uh, and, and then when I got older with my parents, they, they really exposed me to different restaurants and all around the world. And it was, it was, you know, it was a huge part of like what we would do on a holiday. And we spent, um, being half French, I spent a lot of summers in France and, um, in fact, all my summers. And I was really introduced to the French, you know, the markets. I, I have memories of going to my first farmer's markets were there and just eating really fresh food and all of that. But not being aware at all about food systems or sustainability or, you know, how my food was grown. And the real change happened um, about 15 years ago. I, I had been... Um, I had developed health issues when I was around 14 um, to 16, and they got really bad when I got to college. Um, and they were mostly uh, women's health issues that were undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And they were most, mostly conditions that have no cure. Things like I suffer from um, insulin resistance. I suffer from um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is, um, you know, uh, an immune, uh, an autoimmune disorder. I suffer from endometriosis, um, which affects, you know, quite a few women, but is completely under-researched and underfunded and under understood. And I basically was honestly, very honestly, I'm going to be up, up front. I was seeing all, I was taken to lots of older white male doctors in the U S in the UK and in Hong Kong. And they mostly ignored my symptoms and told me that I had IBS um, irritable bowel syndrome. And that was it. And, and I just felt really unwell. And I was, you know, this was when I was, you know, 19, 22, 25, like you're not supposed to feel that unwell, um, unless something is, is majorly wrong and you need to be in a hospital, which, which wasn't my case, but I felt run down. I felt sick, what, what have you. And this is right around the time when Google and their search engine came around. And that was just Google, you know, really changed my life because I'm, I'm a real, researcher by nature. And, you know, once you leave school and university, you no longer have access to like these amazing libraries and LexisNexis and all this. So when Google came along and I could actually just do my own research, I decided to do, to do my own research about my own health. And that's when I came face to face with what was happening at the time in the food world was the whole, um, you know, the surge of the raw food movement and the 
you know, looking at gluten, things like the candida diet, and this idea that we really need to relook at using food as medicine. And so I went through a phase where I tried all of these things, raw veganism. I tried a candida diet. I I did gluten-free. I did, I started to buy everything organic or grass-fed or, you know, sustainable, like toxin-free seafood if I could find it. Um, And then I, that's when I really start to understand, okay, the quality of the food I buy is related to how it's grown and the agricultural system. And the more I dove into those topics, the more I understood that, ah, okay, so it's also about the soil and it's also about the water um, and it's also about the ethics, right? And it's also about the hormones and the antibiotics. And that's really where it snowballed. And I completely changed my life. I went into a life where I, you know, only ate at home, only bought really, you know, ethical and environmentally friendly and and toxin-free produce and, and, and brands. If I was buying kind of pantry items, you know, I really cut out things like white sugar from my diet and, and, um, and processed what, what, what I would call today ultra processed foods. Um, and I really changed my approach. Um, and I really started focusing a lot on, you know, nuts and seeds and veggies and, and becoming predominantly, you know, plant forward, with a little bit of animal protein. I I gave up seafood a long time ago because of ethics. Um, Actually, it was a Guardian article about the shrimp slavery that really, I I cut that out overnight and then, you know, started to learn more about fish farms and all this and just was... And and so when I decided to change my life, I also changed the products I was using in my bathroom and in in my cleaning cupboard and my laundry. And I started to, you know, avoid plastic for the, you know, because I didn't want BPA or I didn't want any, you know, uh, endocrine disrupting hormones, because it's very likely that uh, some of the conditions I have are linked to exposure, overexposure to plastics, um, as well as, you know, uh, toxins in food and, 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 and what I was putting on my body and things like that. And, um, I, I felt strongly that, you know, well, I've changed my life and I'm meeting all these interesting people, chefs, activists, environmentalists, NGO folks. I'm learning about companies that are really trying to think through things differently or, or organizations that are trying to solve problems. And I just felt, you know, why we need a platform in Asia for this. So I started a blog, not understanding anything about media or blogs. Um, to be very honest, though, I had always been a writer. Um, I, I I started my first magazine when I was like nine years old in, in like grade grade five. I was like photocopying. I was writing it out by pen and then photocop. My mom would photocopy it at her office and I would hand them out. And then I was on the school paper and I was an editor. And I started this journal called Peace of Mind in, in high school. So it wasn't when I look back, it wasn't completely foreign. But when I started Green Queen, I had no plan. It wasn't supposed to be a career. And yeah, I started just putting out content and I quickly realized that I didn't really want to be, I didn't want to be the face of it. So I didn't have my name on it for the first four years or a photo um, because I know this is hard for people to understand, but I actually just didn't want to be in the limelight at all. But the problem 
is, is that I started getting asked to speak. And of course, the more you're in media, the more you realize people want to know you and your story. And, and that's something I struggle with still today, because for me, it's about the issues and the content. But, but that's how Green Queen kind of mushroomed into what it is today. Well, I appreciate that background. That's, uh, I mean, I guess think listening to all of that, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, because of your journey in trying to understand the source of the ingredients of the foods you were eating and understanding that certain foods just actually led to worse health outcomes for mm. you, how did that change your relationship? Because you described earlier this rich um, cultural history of food and this love of food in your family, and and then you seem to have gone down this journey where you were changing the way you ate. How did that change your relationship with your family, your connection to food in general and, and people around you? Did that negatively impact that whole scenario? That's such a good question. And it's such a thoughtful question. And I really want to discuss it because it's very relevant for where we are today in the plant-based kind of all protein space where it's starting to feel too much like you're on my side or you're against me, right? And there are a confluence of factors that have led me to believe that the most important context is to be flexible and tolerant. And part of it is that I come from this food-loving family. I married a food-loving guy. We absolutely connected over two things when we first started dating, which is food and music. Um, So much of our relationship with my mother or with my husband are around food and the enjoyment of food. And I myself am a feeder of people. I am just like my mother and my grandmother. I mean, I was the girl, we would come home from partying in college in the States and everyone would always come to my flat because they knew, and it was a lot of the guys, right? They knew that Sonali at 4am would like make you mushroom pasta right from scratch because I wanted to feed people. Like there is nothing that makes me happier than like looking at my dining table full of people enjoying food that I cooked. I love that. I love helping people order in restaurants. I love helping people discover tasty things. So I was able not to lose that. But in terms of with my family, I took the view that I was going to change my habits, but I was not going to impose it on others. Because for me, I I joke about this. Like I say, I'm, I'm a Hindu by birth. So I just, I don't believe in converting people. Um, it's, it's just this, this joke I have, but, but I actually mean it a little bit because I just, I don't want to impose my view on you. I want to do what I think is a good idea. And maybe we start a conversation and a dialogue. And so my mom being awesome and my husband also, after a couple years, they, they, they tried out how I was like, they didn't cut out meat cause they both still eat meat and seafood, but they reduced. And they eventually in the last few years have been willing to try the alternatives and explore veggie rich meals. But I have to say that my mom is, is, you know, she's an, she's Indian and she's a food lover. She, she loves vegetables. Like we always had more than 50% of our dishes on the table were veggies. So it's not like I grew up with only a piece of meat and and no veggies. So I don't have that culture at all. And you know very well that the Indian culture and the the Thai culture and the the Chinese cultures of food are are rich 
in vegetable dishes. So you're not sitting there going, oh, okay, well, I'm going to cut out the meat so I only have like potatoes left, right? That's not the reality. So there wasn't any kind of fighting or tension per se, but there was a lot of teasing. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I still am the butt of the joke a lot of the times. And it's like, oh, you know, just yesterday I, I was with my sister-in-law and, and she said something like, oh, you know, I, I did this, but I didn't want to tell you because I was like, oh, Snolly that like is going to think this is so unsustainable. And I said, I, I just felt so bad because that's what I'm always trying to avoid. And I really try not to be like a lecturer in my personal life or talk about it. But I guess people know Green Queen and they, I guess they hide stuff from me or they don't tell me if they buy a lot of stuff or they eat a lot of meat. But, but basically I, I really try to come from a place of everyone's on their own journey. And I am not the person with all the answers. I have some information, some resources, some ideas, some conversation starters, but I'm not here to, it's for me, it's not such a, black or white situation. I think it's fluid. And and because I have such a rich food culture background, I've I've I have a lot of empathy for a person's food culture in their own family, in their own tradition. And who am I to go up to someone and say, your food tradition is crap and you need to, you know, change it. That's that's feels very wrong and disrespectful to me. So I am teased a lot in my family and I am still, I still remain the only like, you know, plant-based person in the family, but everyone has adapted to being way more plant forward. Yeah. I can relate a lot to, to what you just said. Um, from, you know, just a quick note on my similar experiences. I think what I used to say is that I, cause I've been writing and talking and thinking about these issues for over a decade now. And I used to tell people that I have enough of an outlet professionally to to um, to rant about these issues that I don't need to do that with friends and family. Uh, another part of the question that I really was interested in exploring, um, and I'll give I'll tell you why, is that what was your experience having to deal with? And and the reason I'm spending so much time on on this is because I think it's a missing component of this current you know discussion around food systems change and alternative protein and future of food uh, and, and all the latest uh, focus on uh, redoing our food system by changing the way we produce meat, cheese, eggs, and dairy and seafood. And I think that people sometimes forget what we're talking about is food. And food is more than just a component of our existence. It is very intertwined with who we are as people, how we relate to each other, how we connect with our friends and our family. And, you know, the perspective I'm also interested in exploring is how did it change your your own mindset, having to deal with your family in a different way? And I asked that partly because I had a similar experience growing up. I This was way before I gave up seafood and, and, and other stuff for for environmental and ethical reasons, but uh, I discovered early that I was allergic to shrimp. Um, mm. And so my family loved or loves seafood. They still love seafood. And we'd go out to dinner often um, and we'd go to nice restaurants. And one of them was a seafood restaurant. And I found myself feeling uh, 
particularly ill every time I went to that restaurant. And then one day decided not to eat the shrimp or I started playing around, experimenting with what was causing me feeling uh, really nauseous after going to that restaurant and realized it was the shrimp. And so I told my family, I don't think I can eat shrimp because it makes me feel ill. But it created this weird barrier between me and my family instantly where they were constantly aware that, oh my God, we should we order shrimp? He can't eat it. Um, and it was more from my perspective. So I'm curious from your perspective, when you were, for health reasons, had to cut out, I'm sure you felt a bit of a, depending on what age this was, felt a bit of a disconnect between what was uh, was normally consumed by everyone versus what you chose to consume. Um, I definitely felt similarly to you. And I think it was on both sides. I think nobody was being disrespectful or, I mean, there was a lot of teasing and there still is, even with my in-laws, you know, but it was this kind of like, oh, it, it became a topic in a way that very honestly made me uncomfortable and continues to make me uncomfortable because I definitely have been raised with this don't make things difficult for other people. I don't know if that's like an Asian thing or an Indian thing or just a me thing, but I never want to put people out. And so I never tell people that I'm plant-based or vegetarian or whatever. I never do that. Um, you know, unless I'm like specifically asked for like a banquet meal or something, but I really try not to be difficult. Um, and I, like, I always like, I, you know, I'll never say to someone if I'm going to their house for dinner, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian or I'm a vegan. I, I won't do that. I'll just eat around it because the last thing I want is for someone to do something special for me. But what's happened is it's become this thing, like you just said. And so everyone mentions it and I, it adds this like layer of complexity and just, and that I wish wasn't there, but in some ways it's gotten much better in the last couple of years because one, there's an awareness that we do need to change what's on our plate, right. For the environment. So it's not as weird as it was Two, there are more options on menus. So it's just easier. Um, there are vegetarian options and, and, and vegan options, which honestly more than three years ago, there just weren't. Um, so I, I feel like that helps. And honestly, I do feel like my family in the last two years and three years, especially have realized that it is healthier to be mostly mm -hmm. plant-based. And so it's easier for that to happen. Um, where before celebration, like, okay, last Christmas, my mom did not make a turkey. That was the first time. She made an impossible Wellington and I made uh, a butternut squash roast, like a nut roast. Um, and that was, that had never happened before. And do you know why? It turned, my mom has never really liked um, poultry. Like she's not a huge fan. So she was making it for me and my husband and previously my stepdad who, who she's no longer married to. And so then, and then my husband was the only one eating it because my son and I are plant-based, right? And she wasn't eating it. And so it came more from a like, do we even need this? And so that, but, but, but before last year, she would have felt like it can't be Christmas without a ham or a chicken. Do mm -hmm. you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's this allowance that like people are allowed not to have animal foods in a way that wasn't there before. Yeah. It's, and it's, I'll give you an example. It's the same with the Christmas tree. Like I usually do a, a very sustainable Christmas tree. So it'll be like out of books 
right? Or we made one out of old wood last year and we try and do one and we're trying to do this with my son, right? But for my mom, it's like the Christmas tree is Christmas, right? But it's like we're getting these Christmas trees shipped from Washington mm-hmm. across the world to Hong Kong. Okay, it's on, a, it's on a boat, it's on a plane, but still, it just feels completely off. But at the same point in time, what do you do? Because this is where it's a struggle because we're still in this period of transition for the world of redefining traditions with, by still respecting them and honoring them, but finding new ways to do it in a way that still feels good, but is not environmentally disruptive, disruptive, sorry. And, and it's not, we're not there yet. It we're still in like a middle ground. But, you know, are you, are you asking me if it adds complexity to every meal and get together? It does in a way that I, I wish it wouldn't, but I also won't, I, I won't like eat meat just to make it easy. Mm-hmm. And if you zoom out, this is the reason why most people who are busy going about living their lives, which are, which is hard enough, uh, trying to get by and feed their families and, Uh, make friends and be social and have a career where thinking about adding a layer of complexity to their life out of choice for some sort of greater good seems like a bit of a stretch for most people, which we know why this, this is exactly why changing food habits and changing the food system isn't as simple as ever. It's just sad because if you really think about it, everything you started off discussing in the beginning about the the joy of food, uh, when and how did this get so bad, right? So I guess it really comes down to why is it that people should have to think about this issue and have to make quote-unquote sacrifices when they're eating um, because someone somewhere has developed a has has decided to decided at some point to take our food system in a direction that has put us into this place where we need to reconsider our food habits as one way to tackle um, the problem of climate change and food food insecurity um, and overfishing and the impact on our ocean. So, really, if I'm asking as someone as an outsider, assuming it's just not me, someone from your family or friends who just hear people like us talking and are and and really don't live in our bubble but perhaps and say i i really have no time for this i just want to live my life and enjoy food uh and of course if the food's making me sick i'm not going to eat it i'm going to try to avoid it but for the most part food is joy food is sustenance and i'm i'm not going to make sacrifices how do you explain to them and like who who bears this responsibility is it a human be- is it everyday consumers or is it those that control the food system so first of all, no, I, I do not believe that it is everyday consumers who are responsible for everything. I'm not a neoliberal capitalist, so I'm just going to be very upfront about that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not saying consumers play no role. I mean, I'm not saying we need to abdicate all responsibility. And I think I told you offline that I, I am someone who deeply believes that anybody that has a middle class, safe life, or above, right? Upper middle class, upper class, privileged, whatever, has a responsibility to be, to help, to support, to, to lift up others. Um, so, so I do believe that as humans, if we can, we should, um, help and, 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 and support. But 
I also don't agree that it, it's all our fault. And I, I do not believe we will get out of any of these crises without regulation, without taxes on the right things, without, you know, and uh, and producer responsibility, without, um, you know, uh, incentivizing people to do what's right for the planet and without doing the right maths. We're not doing the right maths. We're only doing shareholder capitalist math. We're not doing math that takes into account the cost of anything in our economy to the environment, to human health, to, you know, biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. So the system is flawed. We operate within a flawed system. Is it my responsibility at every friend and family gathering to lecture people that don't want to be lectured and are not interested? I don't believe it is. I do believe that my work speaks for something. And I do believe that it is okay and and to, to also take a step back sometimes and just let people be. I believe that there is grace and value in tolerance and flexibility um, and, and, and allowing people to just be sometimes. I also believe there's times and places. So if you're at someone's birthday dinner, um, they don't want to be lectured and, and I'm not going to indulge that. I also think that I am a bit of a journalist at heart. So for me, going into spaces that are out of the echo chamber of my industry and my work are places where I like to observe. And so me lecturing people or boring people or making people uncomfortable will, would affect what, how they would be. And to some extent, my job already does that. So I don't want to compound the problem. And so I just like to listen. But I will tell you this, that I spent two months as I, I told you offline that for the first time I got a holiday and I, I spent two months outside of Hong Kong having not left for almost three years and I was in Europe and I did spend a lot of time with friends and family and I just, I really observed and listened and tried to see where the world was at, where not in my bubble, okay, in my, in my sustainable food tech, like plant forward bubble. And I, it was a nice sober, I mean, nice, it was a sober reminder that for most people, none of this is top of mind. I was with people who work for the UN. I was with people who are the most amazing parents ever. I was with people who are just the loveliest human beings. Not any of them are concerned about the climate in a way that I believe we should be, given the urgency of the situation. So that was a good sober awakening that we're not getting through. Um, we are too much in our bubble. Somehow the bubble is not feeling inclusive. And it was a good reminder that you can bring as many products as you want to market. You can, you know, innovate and tech your way out of so many things. But like, where is the behavioral the mass behavioral change because I'm not seeing it. And, you know, I, one of the things that, you know, I'm sure you, you, you appreciate this is that we've been in this industry for a while. The last two to three years, there's been this explosion in this like food tech, old protein, plant-based meat industry. And in the beginning, you know, we didn't have, um, you know, what we call in French, like recul, like we didn't have like perspective because we, it was at the beginning. Right. And, and, and we want to encourage the beginnings and we want things to flourish and ideas and people and founders and technology. 
but it's been three years now. And I think it's time to have some, some tough conversations. I feel like we've reached adolescence for the industry, if you will. And I think it's time to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And we, there are numbers coming out that are, you know, that feel a bit like setbacks in terms of the adoption of plant-based meat, um, the type of consumer that really is buying into it, um, repeat sales, uh, fidelity of the products to the animal version, um, you know, are, and, and overall, just have we achieved mass change? Because a lot of these plant-based meat companies, right, and, and of course there's precision fermentation and there's cultured meat, but most of those are not on the shelf. So let's let's stick to, to plant-based meat, right? The, the, the promise of plant-based meat is we're going to make these products that are one for one with the animal version and we're going to put them on the shelf and consumers are going to choose them because they want to do better by the planet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's right. And, and through markets, we're going to fix the problem, right? And, and, and we're going to, our marketing is going to revolve around the environmental cost of what's on our plate because you know, five years ago, most consumers didn't understand. Now I feel like everyone gets it, right? Like we, a lot of people now know that we eat too much meat and that livestock is, is, is rearing is, is terrible for gra- greenhouse gas emissions, right? I think we, that message is seeping through. But you look at the numbers, meat consumption is on the rise, right? Inflation and, and the war in Ukraine and, and supply chain disruption has caused food prices to shoot up. And what's happening, people are going back to animal proteins. Um, A lot of the plant-based meat products are having trouble creating repeat business because the truth of the matter is, and I think it's very hard to say this, is that a lot of the products just aren't living up to the hype. And and I think there has been a lot of of overhype. And I say this as someone invested in the space, as someone who has a media dedicated to showcasing these solutions. And so... I think it's time for one of, for a reckoning. And, and, and my reckoning question is, you know, where is the systems change theory? Where is the behavioral change theory in this big movement? Because what we're doing now somehow is just not cutting through. And I mean, I don't know, do you, what do you think of, of all, you know, you being right on the cutting edge, doing work in this space every day, what do you see? What do you feel? I would have to agree with everything you you just outlined over there. I think um, I think we went in in the last few years with some assumptions um, that the way we've been trying to convince people uh, to change their eating habits has not worked. Uh, and I think most of that thinking emerged out of the animal advocacy movement that was pushing for plant-forward diets uh, through their two campaigns and other advocacy work. Uh, That started to shift a little bit, um, and I I can't pinpoint the year, but there was a strategic shift, at least in the U.S., and and one can say it probably began here, uh, a strategic shift to look into uh, how we can use markets to sort to sort of fix this problem like how can we use the power of um, changing market dynamics and creating uh, 
uh, a you know good quality plant based meats that mimic uh, the real thing. Uh, and it may have been I don't know what came first, whether that thinking came first or companies like Beyond. Uh, impossible and and a few others came first most likely it was the companies that that seeded this idea and then a movement emerged around it and and this kind of shift with with organizations like gfi right yeah yeah i mean primarily driven by organizations like gfi and i think it then led to you know we swung all the way to the other end of the pendulum thinking that we had found the ultimate solution we were going to just create more and more products and Beyond turned out to become Beyond Meat turned out to become a great case study uh, that this theory was working. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, both from their initial uh, success to leading up to their blockbuster IPO, it felt like we've never been more right about um, this theory of change that we can use the power of markets to uh, bring great quality products to the market. And then hopefully we'll have enough consumers interested in eating it. Um, because the research also pointed to the fact that most Americans were trying to cut down their meat consumption. Um, and this success of companies like beyond would fit squarely within that need. Now, I think it's too early to say that, that, that theory is completely wrong. Um, uh, but I do think it's clear that that theory most likely is incomplete. Uh, and that theory of change is only part of a much bigger puzzle of things that need to change because that theory of change ignores uh, some very fundamental ways in which um, the food system is currently designed and also some very practical ways in which the, which the food industry works. And I, it's starting to become really clear with a lot of... Um, new startups that have emerged since Beyond's IPO, that many of them paid no attention or very little attention or minimal attention to the dynamics of the food industry and paid far too much attention to producing products that would stand out and attract investment. Um, mm. and, the, and it became sort of a race to creating the best product. And it still is to a certain extent. Um, which is why we shouldn't really go into fermentation and, and precision fermentation and cell-based because, again, that largely believes in the same theory of change, that once we get the products right and once we get the perfect ingredients and somehow nail it from a nutrition standpoint, we're going to magically transform how people eat. But that's not – we are missing the point that food that is manufactured somewhere doesn't automatically end up in, in people's plates because it is manufactured somewhere. It it has a whole system that gets it there. Secondly, the food that is produced relies on inputs and uh, an agricultural system that hasn't really changed much. Um, so we're trying to create products, but we're not changing the entire sort of system that it's connected to uh, and expect some magical outcome in the process. And I think it's a bit of um, there's far too much attention being paid to, to the same uh, solution without realizing that that solution can only take us this far and that you cannot ignore behavioral change and you cannot ignore food systems change. Um, And maybe the folks focused on this theory of change don't have to worry about those things and maybe other people need to worry about it, but we all ought to start talking to each other. Otherwise, we really are going to uh, firstly not change anything. And secondly, these companies and products are not going to achieve their potential, even if they start to mimic meat and cheese and eggs exactly the way they hope to. So 
that's my sort of quickish take on that. No, I mean, it's not a quickish take and it's, it's a thoughtful take and it's, it brings us to another part of the, the problem and, and kind of one we've circled around it, which is we can't be in this, in this, in this binary world. We absolutely cannot be in this binary world. It cannot be the vegans here and the non-vegans here or the regen ag here and the, the plant-based meat over here. It, it just, it cannot be that way because we're in an imperfect world where there are so many different interests vying for our attention for, with agendas that are, that are different. We have different cultures. We have different health requirements. We have different countries. Um, and, and that's always been such like a nice thing about us being based in Hong Kong, but me having ties to Europe and having spent, having been educated in the U- United States is that I can kind of jump between different cultures and, 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 and see, you know, that, that societies are different and, you know, the supermarket is different in different countries and it, it one way will not fit. So for me, there was never any question that, the beyond meat way wasn't necessarily going to be able to fit in every country in, in Asia because it just, it wasn't right. Because it, I mean, we don't eat burgers every day. Right. So there was always going to need to be more and diversity and, and varied products and, and solutions. So, so that was always baked in for us at, at green queen and, and me and how I think um, because it has to be, um, you know, but are we, I think you said something really important. Are we, are we talking to each other enough or are we now within the industry just all in our silos and 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 you know you brought up the the funding and the investor that you know the the, the I, I almost feel like you know some some days it feels like the whole industry is just we're here to prop up the vcs where it should be like the vcs are here to prop up the solutions you know and i think there are some incredibly thoughtful vcs and i you know full disclosure i am an, an advisor to a couple. And I specifically am on those funds because I think they are thoughtful and they do look at things holistically and they do do actual due diligence, but it has become a bit of a race for who has the biggest check and, and how many headlines do you get from your fundraising? And, and, and that's very much like a a hangover from, you know, the tech world, right. And the finance world. And, and it's overall a giant hangover from, you know, neoliberal capitalism where, the only value that that we have as people or as ideas or as companies is, is our monetary value. And, and that's how we've gotten it wrong in the whole, in the first place, you know, cause we've never been doing the right maths. We, there have been no climate maths, no social capital maths, no human labor maths. Right. I mean, that's how we've ended up with, you know, a food delivery conundrum where, you know, you have giant companies that come into a city like Hong Kong where we had food delivery um, from drivers who were actually employed by restaurant groups and paid a living wage and paid, you know, health benefits who then got fired because all restaurants were, you know, strong armed into going onto these new age delivery platforms where drivers are suddenly freelance consultants and it's the Uber story. And, you know, that's not okay. You know, that's not good. Um, but now we're all addicted to convenience and we can't walk one street over to get takeaway um, because we need someone to deliver it to us, even our coffee, you know, in a plastic cup. So 
we we've lost the plot, but we've also been set up in a system where there's only one metric, mm-hmm. and no, and we're not all talking to each other, and we're not, you know, one of the things I always say when I'm on panels is is like, hey, this isn't a, a we're not in a scenario of oh, it's plant based meat or livestock. Uh, no, 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 no because of growth in population and demand, like it's livestock plus plant-based meat, livestock plus cultivated meat. Mm-hmm. We, we need all the solutions. And then we need all the solutions to kind of, this problem is, is of such magnitude and of such urgency that we just, we need all the brains and all the ideas and all the, all the moonshots. But we, we also need to kind of not all be going one way, right, to the moon. We also all need to be looking at left and right at each other and, and kind of talking. And yeah, I 100% agree. And, you know, I would love for you to sh- share some of the perspective that you're seeing in, in Asia, for example, because obviously sitting here, we, I mean, we see it online perhaps, but we don't quite understand how... Uh, alternative proteins are uh, even perceived there is the scale of the problem understood are the problems different because lately i mean i see a lot of um, focus around cultivated meat or cell-based meat in asia as being a potential uh, market where it may launch first or is launching already um, and is that any sign that there is consumer uh, interest or adoption for these alternatives is asia more likely to uh, embrace newer products? Is there cultural reasons for that? Are there just uh, economic reasons for that? Anything you can share about the Asian perspective would be really useful. Sure. Um, I think let's answer your question from a very specific uh, point of view, which is, you know, will Asian consumers, and of course, Asia being a huge place with, with different countries, um, you know, dozens of different countries with different cultures and different socioeconomic situations. But Overall, if we are to make some generalizations, I do think uh, Asia will, for me, I think be one of the regions where we will see things like cultivated meat accepted or present faster. And we already know that that's happened because we know that Singapore has become, you know, one of the major food tech capitals of the world, if not the, the food tech capital of the world. And we know that cultivated meat has been commercialized um, and, and regulated for the first for commercial sale for the first time in Singapore. So to some extent, this has already happened. And, and why is that? I think if I'm looking at the customer base and we do see data that, and again, these are small studies and, and they're preliminary, but the data that we're seeing preliminarily is that Asian consumers tend to be more open to the idea of cultivated meat. And I think I have some ideas on why that is. Um, You know, one of them is I don't think that we grow up with the same meat lobbies stories that Europeans and Americans do of like the happy cow in the farm. We also don't grow up seeing that as much, right? We're not as close to farms in some ways, especially animal farms. We don't walk around in our cities and see, you know, roaming pigs or roaming cows. So that connection is not the same. Um, now, of course, it's different depending on where you are. I think rural Asian population would have a different experience and is closer to a farm 
and to roaming animals. But those consumers are very honestly not even thinking about plant-based meat. They've got other concerns. They're at a much different level in their kind of socioeconomic journey, which is they're just trying to survive and often on very, very, you know, tiny amounts of money. And they're at the mercy of the climate in a way that I think is very important to understand in the bigger discussion around dealing with the climate crisis. But I don't think rural Asian farmers and farming communities are worried about beyond meat or not beyond meat. Right. So the customers that are looking at plant-based meats are urban, uh, up, upper middle class affluent customers. Right. And those customers tend not to have that relationship with agrarian life and roaming farming animal life that Europeans or that, that the same type of consumer in Europe or America would have because they would have maybe had a grandparent that lived on a farm or holidayed in a place where there, where there was a farm, right? So that's a big difference in culture and connection, right? Because if you're not thinking of the happy cow in the field and you're being told, and you don't really think about where the steak on your plate or the beef or chicken on your plate comes from, you know, you might, it might be easy for you to go, oh, well, if it's cultured and it's the same thing, um, go team, right? So that's one. And then, and then the other thing is the top down analysis, which is the government attitude to things like this. And I think in Asian countries, for reasons that are not just about autocracy or government systems, but also about the fact that in Asia, there's just so many more people to account for that state planning and food systems planning is something that is much longer term because it has to be if these countries want to raise their average GDP and get people out of poverty, right? Countries like India and China and Indonesia, they, they have to be thinking longer and, 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 and broader, right? It's not just like a four-year election. It, it's bigger than that, right? Because they've got, you know, in India, you have 600 million people that are still very, very poor, um, you know, where food scarcity is still an issue. And so if you're a government and you're looking at food security um, for a billion people, well, I got to tell you, like local bioreactors that can grow meat look very attractive to you in a way that they might not in a country like Australia or the U.S. where you have, you know, decades of pasture land with roaming animals on it that, you know, are already part of the system. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's different maths again, come coming back to data and, and, and what you're looking at, how you're analyzing it. And so governments in Asia, certain governments in Asia, and I would say Singapore, China, to some extent, uh, India, can, can must look at these technologies in a different way. Um, and that's exactly what's happened in Singapore with the 30 by 2030 plan, where it's like they want to be 30% food secure by 2030. So 30% of all consumed food in Singapore should be grown locally. And cultivated meat plays a part in that, as does precision fermentation technology, as does indoor agriculture, right? That for a tiny little city state like Singapore that doesn't have, you know, unlimited pasture land, that that's that's what they're looking at. And they're looking at aquaculture for fish farming, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a, it's, it's a different outlook. 
Um, and, and Asia is where, you know, over 50% of the world's population lives within five hours of where I live in Hong Kong. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge number. And I don't know how many people realize that the effects of climate change are going to be felt in Asia more than anywhere else in the world. And climate change equals food system disruption. So, I mean, we can keep using the word climate change, which for most people feels very far away and, and maybe not something, yeah, maybe it's getting hotter or it's getting wetter or whatever, but actually it's going to disrupt what's in your cupboard, your, your pantry. It's going to disrupt what's in your fridge. I mean, just today I was looking at an, a great article in the Guardian where they were saying, okay, what is a climate conscious, sustainable pantry look like? And one of the things that they were talking on in the piece was actually we need to go back to food that is shelf stable because we're going to have less energy to power. There's going to be less refrigeration. So we're going to have to go back to canning more and, 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 you know, technologies that allow you to keep food, not hot or cold. And I mean, that's crazy to think that, right. But that's where we're going to have to go. And so in Asia, we, we have to think of things differently. And so in some ways there isn't even this luxury of being like, well, philosophically, I don't, agree with this because maybe this is a technology that is just it's going to have to be because of food security the incentives are different which actually kind of uh in an interesting way can help accelerate this movement and perhaps then lead to um lead to the u.s hopefully responding in a positive way because i think at this maybe it's a question of timing and it's a question of priorities and I think obviously from a policy standpoint, the priorities are not aligned with this in the U.S. But it sounds like in Asia, the, the, the long-term view needs to account for climate disruptions, the lack of arable land, the reliance on importing um, food. And then you can see why most governments in, in parts of Asia would be uh, would be interested in being more food secure. That's not a pr- real problem here at the moment in the U.S., but will become a problem eventually. So it's almost like what's happening in Asia, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come generally across the world. And if maybe that can be used as a model to not just bring about the right um, policy incentives, government incentives to set up uh, companies, but also to help shift cultural perceptions of these foods. Maybe that then has a ripple effect that eventually finds its way uh, to Europe and the US. I I don't know what the timeline for any of this is going to look like. It's not like cell phone adoption in Korea and then it it expanding rapidly across the world. I don't know this is going to play out the same way. Interestingly, this movement began in the US, but it seems like it actually has the possibility to grow much faster in Asia. Would you generally say that to be the case? Um, But of course, the U.S. is the biggest market, which also then complicates matters. So most Asian companies are trying to come here because otherwise you can't be a viable company. This is the problem, is that the consumer demand here is not, does not justify the the value, you know, the the valuations and the the market. But I mean, let's separate out plant-based meat companies, which are already, or plant-based dairy, Mm -hmm. which is already on the shelf and you can buy it to some extent versus, um, versus a a cultivated and precision fermentation where, you know, that's, that's R and D technology that, you know, I don't believe we're going to see cultivated meat in supermarkets for 
I mean, really optimistically 10, 15 years, if not more than that, right? But I do believe that it will be part of the basket of solutions that we use to feed people in the future. I do. Um, after we can, we can just, whether we agree with it morally or not, and, and I personally do, because I will say that I didn't start out as an animal rights. I didn't come to eating plant-based because of animals, but I will say that eating plant-based brought me closer to animal ethics and made me want to protect them in a way. Also getting a dog changed me. Um, so, so two things that really, for me, it's like, well, if I can, if I can have the option that hurts animals less, I'm going to want that option in it. And mm -hmm. I do feel like there's this giant kind of reckoning mentally. You become different when you cut animal flesh out of your diet. And I do think it plays upon your, your just the way you see the world. So, and I, I don't think that is only happening to me. I think I have found other people that have gone on a similar journey. So I do think that there's also that whole side of it that I don't think we are going to dive into as deeply today, but it is something that is happening on another level for people. But I also think that we can't say, okay, well, Asia is going to find the answers and then let's see what we can learn in the U S because I think again, it's just completely different food systems. Um, you know, even the way our attitude to cooking, our attitude to how we shop for groceries, our attitude to how we measure and, and, and value ingredients in a food chain is so different from one country to the next and certainly from Asia to the U EU to, to, to the U.S. And even there are huge differences between Europe and the U.S. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, for sure. Um, so there's it, it's just how these technologies have to be adopted in ways that work locally, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk recently about how the math for local food miles was off and basically the local versus non-local doesn't matter as much. And, and some of that math is, is very convincing and, and some of the data really does hold up based on what I've seen. But once again, we're not doing the math right because yes, maybe from an emissions point of view, it doesn't matter if your steak or your, your lettuce came from, you know, far away or, or close by. But what about from a community point of view, mm -hmm. from a freshness point of view, from an eating seasonally for nutrition point of view, from a, you know, uplifting everyone in the community point of view, the, the, the benefits of having farms closer to communities for biodiversity, which then helps with air quality, which then helps with, with health. So we're not again, we're not doing the math right, you know, and, and we just, we never seem to be able to look at everything that we need to be looking at, you know, and, and we're always only just picking the one thing and, and, and that's just where we're getting it wrong. Yeah. I've seen that too. This everyone, the, the whole local movement is, is, uh, uh, all local foods are not the sol climate solution, which, yeah, I guess that's a, could be considered to be an accurate statement, but it's a bit of a reductive argument about what what the what you mean by this. What what exactly what exact problem are you thinking local food solves? And I think you just articulated that really well in terms of like the breadth of what's what the advantages and benefits are of local food that cannot be reduced to an emissions number. 
tell me that you don't feel better going to a farmer's market and just even being there. I've never met anyone who isn't happy. I mean, people pay to go on holiday to the south of France to go to those markets. So we need those markets. Markets are a key part of human civilization, and they always have been. And food markets more than any other market. And they bring us together and they they connect us back to the earth and to growing. And they are good for our soul. And they are good for our health in a way that we are not accounting for when we make these sweeping pronouncements. And anytime you see programs where people are doing community gardens and CSAs like that are subsidized and, you know, um, uh, uh, city city agriculture, it always has ripple positive effects. It's never like, whoa, that was a huge failure, you know? And so I think we, we really just, we need to have that in our minds when we're thinking about behavioral change of what's on our plate and, and what people are cooking. And Asia will, I think, embrace technology because to some extent they have no choice. They have too many people to feed and, and people that are getting wealthier and more affluent and want higher quality food. And, 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 and let's not forget that we are going, you know, I, I think people are really going to be shocked in, in a few years, but we've got about, in my rough estimate, we've got about 10 years left with the current economic system as it is, with like the current energy sources and the way we distribute food and ship it all over. And then I think in about 10 years, the climate consequences are going to be dire. And it's gonna be like, you're gonna go to a restaurant and they're like, we don't have this on the menu. We don't have this on the menu. We don't have this on the menu. We can't get this for six months. This costs like 10 times the price because there's very little of it. There's gonna be scarcity. There's gonna be you know, limited things. There's going to be taxes on ingredients. Um, there's going to be, I think, much more awareness of the carbon and, and environment, the greenhouse gas labeling of foods and, and, and goods, right? And there's going to be more transparency around that thanks to blockchain enabled technologies and good folks who are really working to provide that information in an open source manner. And it's going to be much harder to hide in our kind of I mean, short of going to live in a biodome, right? And being a billionaire that can just import, that can pay any price for anything. How many of us are really going to be able to be in that situation? And so there will be a reckoning with what's on our plate anyway, whether yeah. you are pro-meat or anti-meat or what have you. Like we will reach a wall with this current system. <laughs> I mean, that's useful context to always keep in mind, right? We can get caught up in the short-term view on what's happening with Beyond Meat stock and the current state of the plant-based food industry and use those signals to inform our entire thinking on the future here when that's uh, what we're experiencing at the moment. Of course, there's economic forces beyond uh, our control that have nothing to do with the food system that are causing some of these problems, but also... Uh, this is an inevitable market correction that was going to happen. So, and maybe I'm I'm uh, drawing conclusions based on what you just said, but it sounds like you still have, in a weird way, because of all the uh, the impending negativity and doom that is going to inevitably come in the next ten years, you do have a positive outlook on 
alternative proteins in general because it's at some point or the other going to become a necessity. And so maybe focusing too much on the, the you know, the, a few startups that are failing or the uh, maybe growth not being as fast as early previously forecasted should not dissuade us from pursuing the course of trying to get people to shift their diets. Assuming we also factor in behavioral change and keep a food systems approach in mind, uh, we might be well positioned when, uh, pardon my language, but when the shit hits the fan in a few years, oh, it's already starting to, and we have no choice but to look for more sources of protein because we just won't have the things we rely on. So yes, but I need to caveat what you just said. I think it's really, really important that we separate the different technologies under alternative foods and alternative proteins and that we have the plant-based meats and and dairy and seafood stuff on, on one side and that industry is going through a reckoning period and there's a lot that we need to sort out in that industry. Um, but it is not the same as cultivated meat or precision fermentation products. First of all, once again, almost none except one, there's only one company that has a cultivated meat product on the market in Singapore. And that is good meat from eat just, um, no one else. So we, we, we have not reckoned with cultivated meats to the same extent. And most companies in that domain are really just at a very early R and D stage. And we've got, you know, many years, if not decades to go. Um, so we don't know where that's going to end up. Right. But we need to be looking at it because if there is a way to give people animal flesh or fish flesh or dairy products without the land cost, the water cost, the greenhouse gas emissions cost, the, you know, health costs, like in this, in the form of the superbug resistance because of excessive antibiotic use, hormone, um, excessive hormone use, and also just like the cost of eating animals that are in pain, which I think is present. Um, you know, why wouldn't we look at exploring this now? Do we need to ask a lot of questions? Do we need really strong regulation? Do we need to be looking at how these companies are, are, are working and what are the inputs they're using? How are they dealing with the fee, the waste byproducts? Um, you know, who owns the technology? Is it open source, etc.? There are so many things we need to discuss, but why cut off the legs of this potentially world changing technology so early on, right? just because a plant-based burger company may not be performing to shareholder expectations or have managed to solve every food problem in the world. And, and for the record, I don't think there's anything wrong with creating plant-based products to recreate certain fast food experiences for consumers that love those. I mean, it, we, we do live in a world where McDonald's sells 2 billion burger patties a year or even more. So, we, we have to reckon with that world. We can't just live in a world, pretend that we live in a world where everyone eats kale salad for lunch. It's just, we're not there yet. We're, we may never be there. And I think it's okay for people to indulge. It, I mean, do you need to eat chocolate? No, but should you? Uh, uh, absolutely. Should it be, you know, chocolate that wasn't made exploiting a child or kind of doing damage to biodiversity or causing, you know, deforestation. Yes, ideally. So 
you know, it, unfortunately, food is a majorly political, complex act, right? I, I mean, eating, sorry, eating is a majorly complex political act. And, and engaging with food is a political act. And I think many of us have only just begun to realize to the extent of that statement. And, um, you know, there's so much more to go. But you asked me about Asia and you asked me what I think is the future for, you know, alternative protein specifically. And, you know, one of the cool things about my job is I get to engage with a lot of the Asian companies early that are very early stage and see how they look at the problem and how they're solving it. And, you know, just this week, I got to go to the launch, or sorry, last week, I got to go to the launch of a new oat milk company. And you might be thinking, you know, do we need another oat milk company? Um, and I would have said before I went to this launch, no, we don't. And now that I went to the launch and I tried the product and I learned more about their supply chain and I understood better how they're looking at what problems they're trying to solve, I my answer is different. I've decided, yes, we do need another oatmeal company. And this oatmeal company is really doing things that are impressive. And they are looking, you know, they base their production in Indonesia. Um, they are working with Australian oats, which are the closest oats to Indonesia um, that they can get because oats don't grow in hot, hot, hot tropical climates. Um, but oats have the best greenhouse gas uh, um, record in terms of all plant-based milks, right? Compared to rice, almonds, soy, oats are, are superior. And they ferment the oats, which results in a natural maltiness and sweetness. So there's no sugar added. Um, and it's just a very creamy, impressive product that when I brought it home, uh, both my, my, my almost four-year-old and my husband separately said to me, can you only buy this one from now on? Which was really surprising because we're an Oatly household. And I, you know, I, I think Oatly has so much, has done so much for, 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 for the industry. Um, but what's really interesting is how the founder and his team are approaching the supply chain and how they wanted to create a product that was produced locally and that had a shorter production chain and a shorter transportation train chain. And that was made with in ingredients. Like for example, they have a chocolate milk where the cacao comes from Indonesia. Right. And they're, they, they are trying to solve for a better, um, healthier supply chain. And a lot of the companies that I talked to, there's, there's a lady in China. She has a company, she's making, um, plant-based meat from peanut protein. Okay. And, and, and from, from what I understand, I, I haven't unfortunately tried it yet, but the few people I know who have tried it said it's, it's actually incredibly impressive and peanuts are an, a really sustainable source of plant protein. Um, and if you don't add in palm, palm oil to peanut butter, peanut butter remains a, an incredibly nutritious, affordable food that really should not be discounted. And so it's just, are we, you know, there isn't just one way to make a plant-based meat product and there isn't just one way to look at supply chains and we will never get away from the fact that we don't all live in the same place. And so we all need to be looking at regionally 
which I think in Asia is a better term than locally, but regionally, you know, what makes sense? And are we, are we creating food products that make the most of what's available regionally and that fit the culture regionally and that makes sense from a price point perspective? Because the other thing that I've really noticed is how Asian old protein companies are able to do so much more with so much less funding. That's number one, because there is a funding gap um, in Asia compared to what U.S. companies get or what EU companies get. And two, how they're able to make products that are far more affordable from the outset. And that's really, really important because one of the missing pieces in the behavioral change argument is affordability, right? Like we know that if we make something delicious and affordable, it will win out on other options. And right now, most plant-based products, you know, in this kind of new revolution of the last five years are not affordable enough in the West. I love that perspective. And also maybe a good place to close out would be um, to kind of go back to where we, we began talking about your culinary roots and your family and tradition and how food played such an important role of your, in your life growing up. How do we, how do we see that evolving in, in the future of food? And what I mean by that, I mean, is one of the big challenges we face today is there seems to be a camp, um, whether it's the foodie press or um, folks who prefer a more regional, local food system that value the cultural aspects of food and the taste and nutrition aspects of food over the need to um, create foods that mimic um their animal-based or traditional counterparts using plant-based ingredients or fermentation or potentially cultivated down the line. There seems to be this divide between this almost like snobbery uh, on one end uh, that, you know, food is what it is. It has to be grown the way it has been grown. We just need to farm animals differently and we need to just buy local organic produce. And that's that alone is a solution, which is another, you know, form of extreme reductive thinking, much like everyone thinking, food tech is going to solve everything. Um, how do we bridge this gap? How do we bring these worlds together? Any, any thoughts or ideas you have uh, to, to figure out how we can ensure that we don't lose the joy, the attachment, the, the rich cultural history of food in the process of uh, reshaping the way we produce food and maybe distribute it in the future because we have to for, for, the, for, for all the reasons you've outlined today? Well, you know, Two things. One, I, I'm not sure that we will ever get to a point where the regen people and the the alt protein people are really on the same page. I would hope that there would be dialogue that would allow for, again, moving away from reductive thinking and thinking that there's only one solution, which I just, it's just the ego of that just doesn't sit well with me. There is no one solution. There is we, we are constantly learning. We are constantly getting new data. We are constantly having our, you know, our sh- sure things be re rejigged because actually we learned this thing that we didn't know before. And, and, you, you know, so certainty is of course, you know, the worst thing, um, you know, that, that we can have. And I think that a healthy 
regard for, um, you know, questioning and asking for feedback and kind of um, reckoning with things and having nuanced debates and kind of also seeking out people who have opposing views is so important. Um, and, and of course, there's a whole discussion to be had around how social media has really cut that out. And we, we lack, we, we all are in our echo chambers and that's dangerous. Um, so I think there needs to be mechanisms around that. And I think that when federal funding or, or government funding is given, it, it should come with uh, the strings attached that, that all these kind of different groups need to work together. Because there is good in all the solutions and it's not a binary world, but equally you asked about, you know, food and joy and, and food culture. And there's a big difference between the food writers and the food activists and the food pundits and the, the companies and the brands. And then the regular folks who go home every day and cook for their families, right. And, or, or are responsible for meal meals, whether they prepare the meals or, or order the meals or take away the meals or, cook the meals, right? Um, and those people, are we giving them enough help, support, respect, tolerance? And I would say the answer is no. And, 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 and I would say that we have commoditized eating in a way that I think is very sad. And, you know, one thing that I am so strict about and, and I have a, you know, almost four-year-old, so he's a very little person, is family meals. And it's something that my husband and I are just, we're so laser focused on it. We will do everything we can on the weekends and then as many times during the week as possible to sit down for dinner. And even if we only manage like 15 minutes, or even if somebody doesn't like what's on the table and doesn't want to eat and whatever, there is this kind of coming together for that meal time. Um, in our case, it's dinner. For some people, it could be breakfast. For others, lunch, whatever. And I, and I, I realize that I, I'm coming from a place of privilege, right? I, I don't need to work two jobs. And there are people who just cannot give their children that. And that's not their fault. And those are the folks we need to be supporting and helping. And I'm such a believer in, like, you know, paid school lunches. And I'm a believer in, um, you know, free food subsidies. And I, I, I just people not having enough to eat is just, it's wrong on so many levels. And I just, I couldn't be more like in favor of all policies to me, let's fix that first before we solve all protein and, 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 you know, farming, let's just give people enough to eat. Um, because there's nothing worse than, than being a parent and, and not having enough to eat for your child, um, and, and your family. Um, so I think we, we need to come back to basics and we need to also separate the, you know, a lot of the conversation around food happens around people who live very privileged lives. And we're not having enough conversations around the reality of food and eating and, and meal prep and meal responsibility for people who are, you know, challenged financially. And so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to again, stay in my echo chamber of privilege and of, of elitism and not, recognize that it's just, I'm not going to judge anyone who is struggling and who gives their kids, you know, a happy meal from McDonald's because it's affordable, it's convenient, and it makes their kid happy. Like go team. You know what? I I'm just, I'm, I'm there for you. I would love it if McDonald's would take the responsibility to maybe provide 
flat-based options, more salads, right? Like more nutrition, better sourcing, you know, but I'm not going to judge that person, right? I'm going to support that person and, 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 and give them what, how can we assist them to make meals easier for them to, to source, and, and I think that's a big part of the conversation. And there are some folks that are working on this and that talk about it. And I, I respect them greatly. But like, but a lot of our conversation around food culture is a very elitist one. Well, Sonali, I've really appreciated this conversation and your perspectives. Um, I'm so glad we finally got some time to sit down and engage on some ideas. There's so much more ground to cover we are welcome back anytime, but uh, thank you for your time today. And I appreciate everything you're doing in the space and the way you view things, which is not in a very simplistic, you know, this solution will solve everything way versus actually uh, looking at it from different viewpoints uh, to arrive at the most common sense uh, path forward. And that's the best we can do. Thank you for having me. And I, you know, if there's one thing I hope people retain from this conversation is, can we approach everything with compassion and empathy, not just for animals, but also for our fellow humans who share this earth with us? Because I do find that when you approach things with empathy and compassion, the binariness tends to kind of dissipate. Thank you, Sonali. Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com